This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit wogcc.com. Well, thank you, thank you for coming. We think we have a popless microphone tonight. (laughs) I hope that'll be helpful to you. Uh, I see there's some new people here, so I want to make a couple of statements, if I could, to start out while I'm making those opening statements. You can uh, turn in your Bibles or open your app to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to try to do 3 and 4 tonight and then do 5 and 6 tomorrow night. Now, you, you decided somewhere in the beginning of the day to come tonight. And I hope you have been praying for me. Uh, this is not entertainment, amen? And you're not going to vote whether you like what I said, didn't like what I said, like my presentation. That's not the issue. The issue is, am I speaking from God's book? And if I am, I can only do that by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So did you pray for me today? Did you ask God to speak to me and fill me? Did you also pray for yourself that you would be open to truth from his book? Because you see, if, if something spiritual doesn't happen here... I don't think you need more information about history or grammar or uh, Bible words. What we need is transformation. We need to bring this truth and so impact our minds that it changes the way we live. Amen? Uh, Would you look at me for a minute? It is a dangerous thing to go to Bible study. Because if you know what God says and then don't act on it, you're in worse shape than you were before you came. And all of us are pilgrims. Amen? All of us. Now, I have a spiritual gift, and I'm so honored to share that with you. That spiritual gift is meant to cause you to search the Scriptures for yourself. It's not meant to tell you truth. It's meant to stimulate you to search for truth. Amen? So, I'm I'm giving you the best that I have from four decades of studying the Bible. But friends... I'm still in a learning process too. And every time I come to the Bible, I see things I didn't see before. So if you would let us all be learners, then I don't want to impress you with my knowledge. I want to lift up Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, Ephesians 3 is a continuation, so I, I want to go back and reiterate just, just again because I think it's so powerful and we've got to deal with these Bible books. We cannot, cannot just jump in the Bible and pull out a verse and make it say what we want it to say. And the only way to protect ourselves is to go through a book contextually at paragraph level. That is the way to catch what the original author was saying to his day. And we've got to know the historical setting. There's a group of false teachers behind the book of Colossians and Ephesians and 1 John. And those false teachers are tearing the churches up with misinformation and fear and elitism and all those terrible things. And Paul has to address that. So this particular group of people overemphasize the place of the human. They would say every person has a divine spark. It's Greek, not Bible. And if you come to our group, we'll really ignite the spark in you. And then you will know. And what you know will help you be saved. Baloney, macaroni. (laughs) So salvation is human knowledge? Absolutely not. 
So why do you think Paul, in the doctrinal section of Ephesians, first emphasizes predestination, chapter 1, which human beings have nothing to do with, grace, chapter 2, which human beings have nothing to do with, and now tonight is the third major doctrine. We hit on it briefly at the end of last session, which is from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 13, is the third major truth of the doctrinal section. And it is the mystery of God, hidden from the ages, but now revealed in Christ. And that is that Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. Now you see it in chapter 2 through the imagery of the dividing wall of Herod's temple. As a matter of fact, the thing they're referring to is a little block that basically said, if, if any Gentile passes this point, he'll be responsible for his own death, which will immediately ensue. We have found that block archaeologically. And that block from Herod's temple is in the museum in Constantinople. Now, I don't know how it got to Turkey, but it's in Constantinople. And you can see it. And basically it was the Gentiles were excluded. And there was the court of the Jewish women, and then the court of the Jewish men, and then the inner sanctum for the priest only. Now, that wall has been taken down. This is the same imagery of the day that Jesus died, the inner veil, not the outer veil, that's always pulled back, the inner veil of the temple before the Holy of Holies was torn not from the bottom, human beings, but from the top. Access, intimate access to the Holy God is now available for human beings. And that's what we're saying. In Christ, every human distinction is down whether it be male or female, or slave or free, or Jew or Greek, all of that is eliminated. You, you've heard the uh, imagery or metaphor, I know, that the, the foot, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And what that is saying is, whosoever will may come when they hear that still, small voice of God wooing and drawing them. Now, that is this section. I'm, I'm not going to go back to chapter 2, but I want to pick up a couple of things. Open your Bibles. Please follow me in your Bibles. Now, Paul uh, reiterates that he's a prisoner. He, he's a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles, and he's been put in jail, as you know, all this trouble because he, they claimed he took Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple, which he did not, but this is Paul's in prison. Now, if you look at verse 2, and this is a little technical, but I want you to bear with me because it's a very important Bible interpretation point. In English, the word if is a condition. We usually use if, meaning it might happen, it could happen. But in Greek, there are specific kinds of ifs. And this is not my opinion or your opinion or somebody's opinion. These are textual markers in the Greek text that have a particular grammatical form. And you've got to know which Greek if it is to understand the text. This one is a first-class conditional, which is assumed that the statement is true, not to reality, but for the author's purposes. The one I think about is uh, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? I don't know about you, but there are some days in my life I wonder how can God be for me? I mean, it, I, that puts doubt in my heart. Look what you thought. Look what you said. Look what you did or didn't do. No, no, no. That's a first-class conditional sentence. Since God is for you, that's the statement, who can be against you? That if make all the difference. 
Many times, in particularly Jesus, sometimes in Paul, they use the second class. Now, the second class condition is a false statement made to accentuate a false statement. If you had known who was speaking to you, you would have believed, but you do not, so you don't believe. You hear that? It's a very powerful construction, and there's a textual marker for it. The third class is just, it could happen. It might happen. It's a possibility. The fourth class is a prayer or a wish. Now, there are only two commentary sets that I'm familiar with that mark every if in the New Testament. Friends, you got one of them in your hand that I did in that CD. Every if in the New Testament is marked for you, and you can check me with anybody who knows the Greek text. I I give it to you. The other one is A.T. Robertson which is a famous Baptist author from generation before. So I hope next time you hit an if in the Bible, you'll stop and find out what kind of if that is before you try to interpret that statement. Now notice where Paul says in verse 2, a stewardship of God's grace which was given to me. Now, I hope you'll look at my notes if you have this. I'm on page 126, or at chapter 3, verse 2. I want to read this quickly. Paul felt he had been entrusted with the gospel. And I've given you all those verses. God's grace came to Paul as a gift. That's verse 7 and 8. And he was a steward, verse 2. But friends, I've got news for you. If you're a Christian, you've been entrusted with the gospel also. You have the answer to the world's need. The world is sick and it's dying. And you've got the only medicine. You've got the only medicine. And the question is, what are you doing with it? To keep it inside a building, to keep it inside a family, to make it this is my personal religion, I just don't talk about it, is to deny the life-giving gift to the very people you were called to give it to. You are, we will all stand before God for the gift of life and the stewardship of the gospel. We will give an account of what we've done with this wonderful, powerful message. Now, in verse 3, Paul says, by revelation. Now, this means that Paul is claiming that he has unique, God-given insight into these situations. We call it the word inspiration. Now, inspiration, it's it's basically God-breathed is where we get it out of Timothy. This scripture is God-breathed. Now, how do we get that message from God? He has to reveal himself. The word means to pull back. God pull back the curtain to show us who he is and what he's doing. Well, where did Paul receive this revelation? Well, there are several options that might surprise you. Number one, Paul heard the testimony of those Christians he was imprisoning. He heard those people that I think he killed stand up and, and testify to Jesus. Then, on the road to Damascus, with letters from the people in Jerusalem temple, God Jesus Christ shone down on him and spoke to him. Now, I tell you what, that was a revelation. But really, the revelation was not in the road. What God basically said through Christ was, if you want to know more, you've got to go up and go talk to Ananias. Now, that's a believer in town, a layperson that God had already spoken to and told him to tell Saul about the gospel truth. So he may have heard it from Christians. It may be part of this Jesus spoke to him. Why are you persecuting me? It may be Ananias' message or 
You know when Paul was converted, he began to preach in Damascus and they tried to kill him and they had to let him over the wall in a basket. And Paul says, I went to Arabia. Now this is not Saudi Arabia today. This is the Nabataean Empire we know as Jordan today. But he went there for several years and he claims that Jesus himself taught him in those years of exile there before uh, Barnabas came and found him and they began the mission team. So there are several possibilities of where Paul received this revelation. But Paul claims to be a full apostle. Now the criteria for apostle is you had to be with Jesus and Paul was not with Jesus. (laughs) You know, Paul, I think he was a, in some ways he was just a little turkey. And I know those other apostles said, now Paul, uh, you really didn't walk with Jesus. And I, I can just hear in my mind what Paul said. I'm the only one of you that ever saw the resurrected Christ, <laughs> the glorified Christ, right? Now, they saw the resurrected Christ, but they didn't see the glorified Christ. Paul says the glorified Jesus spoke to me. <laughs> Turkey, Paul. Well, anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm, he'll get me when I see him. Now, um, Some people say, verse 3, I wrote to you before we have a lost book. But this is just typical of the way first century letters is talking about the first few chapters, not a book that we've lost. Now, I want to mention here where um, where it says, has now been made known and has now been revealed. Uh, Would you look at me just for a minute? I want to be as powerful and as tacky as I possibly can be. You know more about God and His plan and His Son than any Old Testament person. You know more about God and His plan than Abraham or Moses or Isaiah. You know more. And the question is, what are you doing with that revelation? We are informed about what's going to happen and why. We know the end. We have the big picture. And the tragedy is that Christians are silent and never share this wonderful good news. Now, I want to mention, starting at the, the top of page 128, or if you're looking at the notes, it's 3.6. Three, Remember I mentioned to you in the, in the sermon on Sunday that Paul likes to use a Greek compound called S-U-N, or soon, which means joint participation with. And we saw it in chapter 1, verse 20 where God the Father did some things for the Son. And then in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the Son did those same things for believers. Now, Paul, again, is using those three soon compounds to say what the Gentiles were. They were excluded. They were apart. They were not on the right foundation. They did not have the covenants. They did not have the prophets. But now, because of Christ, they are fellow heirs, They are fellow members of one body and they are fellow partakers of the promise. You cannot have a greater set of clauses to say Gentiles are full members of the family of God. There is no Jewish family of God anymore. You're either a believer or you're a non-believer. Now if you don't believe that, I hope you'll look up Romans chapter 2 verse 28 and 29. Hope you're writing this down to check me. Don't you dare take my word for nothing. Galatians 6.16. First, Revelation 1.6, where these Old Testament titles for Israel are now used for the family of God, Jew and Gentile. It's just two kinds of people today. Just two kinds, believers and unbelievers. 
That is the only distinction between human beings today. Now, if you notice, it's dropped down to um, verse 8. And this is where Paul, over and over in his writings, calls himself the very least of the saints. It's a very strange construction. This is a comparative of superlative. I'm not sure this is a good grammar, but it, it, is, it is what Paul felt about himself. Paul is not a good example for evangelical Christianity, which we say we feel God speaking to us, the wooing of the Spirit, we recognize our sin, and we respond in repentance and faith. Well, Paul didn't have much of a chance. I mean, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And if you want to stay blind, just stay where you are. Otherwise, go talk to Ananias. That's not a very big decision. (laughs) Paul saw this as a gift. And if God can save a man like Paul, I don't know what you've done, but if God can save Paul, God can save you. Amen? I mean, this man was. I think he killed Christians. I know he imprisoned them. Oh, man, he was gung-ho. But he was gung-ho in ignorance, not in unbelief. And God had mercy on him. Boy, what a turnaround happened in his life. I'd like to go to verse 10 just for a minute. To, um, by the way, in verse 9, God who created all things. Remember we talked last night about the Gnostic false teachers who believed there were two eternal things, matter and spirit. And spirit was good and matter was evil. So God could not form In Greek thought that God doesn't create matter, he forms it. But since matter is evil and God is good, God could not form matter. So that's where they get these angel levels, these eons, these rulers and principalities. Do you see how Paul in one phrase just kind of slipped right through that bad theology? God who created all things. You got to see the false teachers and this book explodes in meaning. But if you just read it like the morning newspaper in English, you don't understand any of the background to these words and phrases and and theological tones. Now, in verse 10, it says, the manifold wisdom of God. This is the word in Greek, many colored. And it's used of light that goes through a prison and a rainbow appears on the wall. All the spectrum of light appears on the wall. That's what this color is talking about. There are two places, particularly in Peter, that I love. One of them, I've listed them in your notes, you want to see them where it says the manifold problems of our world, the manifold things that we face that are against us. And then it says, and the manifold grace of God. For every problem and human need, thank God, there is a commensurate grace gift. Amen? We are not in this thing on our own. We are not in this thing on our own resources. We have been empowered. And when I get to chapter 6, I'm going to talk about the full armor. And the full armor is a gift from God. But first, you've got to know there's a battle. Second, you've got to know the armor is provided. And third, you've got to implement it. And if you don't, the battle's already won. By the evil one, not by you. Now, notice the rooters and authorities here down in verse 10. These are the angelic levels we talked about. Um, I wish I knew exactly what these were. The Bible is surprisingly silent on the afterlife. There's very little uh, information about the origin or purpose of evil. There's very little information about angelic levels, what they are, what they're like. And there's very little um, information about these principalities and powers. Everything we need to know we have, but oftentimes our curiosity is not answered. There's a wonderful book by a man named Hendrikus Burkhoff called Christ and the Powers. Now, the word here off in the Bible is the Greek word stoichia. You find it in Colossians a lot, elementary principles of this age. He says that they may not be so much demonic 
personal evil as structures in human society that are good in themselves, but when we make them ultimate, they become evil. Now listen to this. Government, education, medicine. Now, thank God for all of those, but if your hope is in government, I hope you know that America's problems cannot be answered by a vote from you. Who we elect cannot solve the problems of this country. Evangelism and a societal revival is the only hope for America. Period. And we trust in, oh, i got to go to the doctor, i got to have help. Friends, if you know Jesus, going home is the good deal. I've been in a nursing home enough that I know just longer life ain't that good a deal sometime. Amen? We get trapped by saying, oh, if I just had a Ph.D., I'd be happy. Some of the biggest jerks I know have Ph.D.s. <laughs> Not you, but the Ph.D.s in Texas. <laughs> I want to go now to 312. Two words I just love here, what Jesus has done for us. You see the word boldness and confident access? These are two very impo- powerful uh, Greek words. The first one means a confidence in approaching someone in authority. Could you go to the mayor of, the, of one of these big cities or to the governor of the state, just knock on the door and get an audience? Could you go knock on the White House door and see the president? But I want to tell you what Jesus has done for us. He has given us confident access to the throne room of God through his righteousness. The next word means the idea of a confidence to speak, a boldness to speak. That's what we have in Christ. Any moment you bow your heads, you're in the throne room of God, and he's glad you're there. Man, what Jesus has done for us. Now, notice the key is through faith in him. I wanted to pick up, uh, again, I know I'm going through this fast. I'm sorry, it's just not enough time to do all this. I want to remind you of the Trinity in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, where we have the Father, Spirit, and Christ. In your notes, I've listed all the places where the Trinity is alluded to. The word Trinity is not a biblical word. It is a Tertullian word from, from the early church fathers. But there are so many texts where the three persons are together. Now, the reason we say three persons... We are monotheist. We are. But the problem is the New Testament presents Jesus as divine. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. And there are so many others. And in this text we're going to see in Ephesians, we can grieve the Spirit. Now, King James, unfortunately, the word spirit in Greek is neuter. So when the King James translators translated that, they put the word it instead of he. But that's just a grammatical issue and he can be grieved, he gives us this, he is with us. The Holy Spirit is also a person. So now we believe in one God, but three eternal persons. And, and that's caused confusion and there's mystery and there's nothing we can do about it except say, and I hope you hear me here, I've struggled so much with this. I'm gonna walk into eternity believing that the New Testament is the fulfillment and ultimate revelation of God, which is Jesus. I believe in the written word, but the authority is the living word. The last word is not the old covenant, but the new covenant. So there's two ways. We were talking about Dallas Theological a minute ago. Dallas looks at the New Testament through the promises and eyes of the old. That's dispensationalism. 
I think that's not appropriate. I think we must reinterpret the Old Testament through the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Because what's happened is the New Testament has changed the Old Testament and universalized what God is doing. It's no longer about a nation. It's about a lost world. Matter of fact, I hope you know Paul well enough to know that some of the quotes, particularly out of Hosea, that are given to Jews, talking in Hosea about Jews, Paul takes those verses right out and puts them to Gentiles, which shows you that an apostle under inspiration is reinterpreting the nationalism of the Old Testament into the believer-non-believer categories of the New Testament. I hope you check me on that. Okay, um, Let's go then, um, let's go to verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So if I ask you the question, which one of the Trinity indwells the believer? Now, from my tradition, um, we would go to Romans 8, where the Holy Spirit is the one that indwells. And I think that's certainly true. Uh, but what about uh, uh, Colossians 1.27? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Or what about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20? And I myself will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I would say to you, based on John 14, 23, that all three persons of the Trinity indwell the believer. I guess this came to me when I was thinking about the resurrection. If I ask you what person of the Trinity is involved in the resurrection, again, most of us go to Romans 8. The spirit that raised him from the dead will raise your mortal bodies also. The Holy Spirit raises from the dead. But then again, over and over, most of the time, it's God the Father that raised Jesus to prove that he accepted his, his acts and his words. It's the Father's act of acceptance. But what about John 10? Three times Jesus said, I laid down my life and I take it up again. All three persons are involved uh, in that. I submit to you that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in all aspects of the gospel. We used to get tickled back home. We'd say, well, the Episcopals have the Father, Evangelicals have the Son, and the Charismatics have the Spirit. We've got to get him back together. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we've got to do it. we just got to do it. Now, if you drop down to verse 19 with me, remember I told you the first day that Paul's going to use a vocabulary that, that is playing on the false teacher's words. Now, remember, between a holy God and a lesser God are a series of angels. Those false teachers call that the fullness of God. It's the word pleroma, the fullness of God. When you look at verse 19, filled up, there's that word, the verb form, all the fullness of God. There's the noun form. It's not these angelic levels that's the fullness of God. It's the Son. To see Jesus is to see God. When you see Him loving the outcast and embracing those who are sick, when you see Him caring about the one who no one cared about, that is the window into the heart of God. I can trust a God that's like Jesus Christ. There ought to be an amen there, y'all. Now look at verse 20 with me. Paul, I just love Paul, he breaks into these prayers all the time. He's almost a uh, doxological writer. But at the end of this doctrinal section, he breaks into this prayer. Unto him who is able to do. May I submit to you that this is a title for God. Unto him who is able. And this is used three times in the New Testament. Romans 16, the book of Jude. 
And three different things are said with the God who is able does. And I'm not going to tell you what they are. You need to look them up. The, being in the Bible is far more than saying, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> okay, I want to go to chapter 4 now. Sorry to have to rush through this, but that's just the way life is. Now, this is the practical section because it says walk worthy of the calling. Walk is a biblical metaphor for the Christian life. Chapter 5, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you. This is the practical section. Now, when it says, notice if you would, that, that we're talked up in verse 20, unto him who is able, and to have glory in the church, that's 321. The word church is made up of a preposition and the verb to call. It's the called out ones. This is not a Calvinism, a Calvinism election thing. Because this very word is used in Acts for a town meeting, a secular town meeting. So the early, the early church went back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament in those famous covenant passages in your Old Testament where it's either translated the congregation of Israel or the assembly of Israel. It's the Hebrew word kahal. And they translated that into Greek as ekklesia. And these New Testament authors took the Old Testament name for the congregation of Israel, the Kahal, the Ecclesia, and applied it to themselves. Why? Because they did not see themselves as plan B. They did not see themselves as a, a, a New Testament surprise. They saw themselves as the ultimate fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. Amen. I think it's powerful. We ought to see that. So, notice if it will, we're talking about calling, okay? Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord entreats you to walk worthy of the manner of the calling in which you've been called. Do you realize the word called is used about four times in these first few verses? Now, we're, we're called to salvation. We call on his name to be saved. And then we're called to ministry. And when I get to chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, I am going to scream it. Not literally. But, well, maybe I will. If you are a believer... You are a called, gifted, full-time minister of Jesus Christ. The worst thing we ever did is buy into the Roman Catholic distinctions of clergy and laity that puts a few guys up on this platform and the rest sitting in chairs. We are the people of God and we will never reach the world till we mobilize the laity and their giftedness. None of these platform gifts usually can function out in the world well. We need all the people of God active. And until we see this, we cannot do it. Um, I want to mention now uh, verses 2 and 3. Now, may I say this? I'm going to say it tactfully, but I want to say it powerfully. I've asked the Holy Spirit to help me communicate this. Hopefully you prayed before you've come. I'm going to show you what I believe from the Bible. If I'm wrong, I want the Spirit to protect you from me. But if I'm right, I'm praying the Spirit will get loosed in here on you. Because we are, we are American Christians who are participators only on one hour a week where we watch somebody else do something. And I assure you there's far more to this Christianity than that. Now this is the text. If I had to say what is the central truth of Colossians, I would say the cosmic lordship of Christ. Now Ephesians is based on almost the same outline as Colossians. But Paul changed it to the unity of all things in Christ. Now, I base that on chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 4, this first long sentence. Verses 2 and 3 are the characteristics... Now, 
These are the characteristics that each and every individual Christian must daily, purposefully choose to initiate in their own lives to maintain unity. Because once you saved, I assure you it's not about you, it's for the health and growth of the family that you've been gifted and called. We are saved to serve, not saved to get to heaven when we die. Now, we, if it, that's true, then I've been in churches where people split a church over the color of the carpet, over what hymn book is used, over what translation the pastor preaches out of, over what kind of music is done. Can you imagine getting to heaven and say, boy, God, I really stood up for you. I just, I just made them... You big weenie. Do you think the music you like is what God likes? I get so tickled. It's like we are. I think every generation picks music that drive their parents crazy. (laughs) I remember people say, oh, those kids, that music is so crazy. You do remember, I was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. You remember that? You sang that. Right? No, no. I think if you like a certain kind of music, be sure to get some tapes and listen to it. But if there's a kind of music that can reach the next generation done here, you better reach the next generation. I have my, one of my friends at First Methodist Church in Waco, Texas says to me, my old people tell me they would die for their grandchildren, but they won't change the music for their grandchildren to come to church. So is, it, is church about what I like and my personal preference or is church about the Great Commission and whatever it takes to reach our generation for Christ? I, my personal belief is there will be several churches in town with different kinds of music. And if all of them have the goal of reaching people for Christ, then we're healthier with different kinds of music across a, a local spectrum. I am one radical dude. I know I am. I am. <laughs> now the first word here is the word humility, verse 2. Humility was a negative word in the Greek world. Most of Paul's list, his vices and virtues, very, very similar to a Greek of moralists, Greek moralists called the Stoics of the first century. Almost exactly their list, except humility is never in the Stoics list. Because to, a, to a, the Jewish mind, humility was a weakness, a milk toastess, a non-assertiveness, and they never prized it. There are only two people in the Bible called humble. Numbers 12, which says Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. By the way, Moses can't write that and still be the most humble man that ever lived. (laughs) Which shows there is an editor in the Pentateuch, right? The other one is Matthew 11, 29, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and lean on me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you'll find rest unto your souls. I submit if Jesus and Moses are humble, it's probably a pretty good category which basically means you're not that hot. Oh, it's just American stuff. Friends, none of us are that hot. We desperately need a little more humility in the church. The second one, and I get a little tickled on this, it's the word gentleness. The reason I get tickled, this is the word for domesticated strength. And I use the example of the Lone Ranger. Do you all ever watch Nick at Night and see the Lone Ranger? It's a that beautiful white big horse. And the Lone Ranger weighs, what, 160, 70 wet? I don't know. How does that 160 or 70 or 80-pound man control that? <laughs> I remember out in Texas one night, I was trying to impress this group, and I said, how does that man control that 2,000-pound horse? 
And a farmer came up to me and said, well, I learned something new in church tonight. I said, well, what? He said, I didn't know the Lone Ranger rode a Clydesdale. I don't know how many pounds the horse weighs, all right? It's a big horse. And that little guy controls that horse with a bridle and the shift of his weight. Now, that rider does not want to break the spirit of that horse, right? But he wants to channel the spirit of that horse, his power, into the will of the rider. Now, the Bible says that God made you just the way you are, Psalms 139. He didn't want to break your spirit, but he does want to channel your giftedness, your personality, your talents for his honor and glory. That's the word domesticated strength. Here, translated gentleness. Now, the, second, the third one is showing tolerance to one another. Well, that's not the third one. Uh, with patience. Let me ask you this. <laughs> this is meant to be humorous. Please, please laugh. Does anybody in this church get on your nerves? If not, you don't go here. <laughs> no, that's just the way it is. There are some people I'd get along with no matter what forum I'm in, and others drive me nuts. There, there are some students that, and I'm not going to tell you what kind, but when I see them, I want to go to the other side of the road. They drive me nuts. And then I realized, if I really want to tell Jesus I love him, I make time for those people who drive me nuts. Because I'm not saying to him in any stronger ways, I love you and I'm available to you by acting kind, generous, and being available to those I would not naturally be drawn to. We need to be patient with one another. God was patient with you and forgave all your faults. And you're not going to be patient with your brother and forgive them? The more we recognize our own flawed nature the more how inappropriate it is for the judgmentalism and finger-pointing. Even if we don't have faults in one area, we certainly have faults in another. We've got to cut each other some slack in grace. Amen? We haven't arrived. We're all in process. But to maintain unity, we're humble and gentle and patient with one another. Showing forbearance to one another in love, meaning letting others go to the fore. Let others have a place of leadership. Let others have a voice. I want to tell you, in most churches, about 10% of the people do all the work, and we just burn them out. And if you're in this church, and you're, or any church, and you're doing too many things, no is a spiritual answer. If you're on five committees and ten other things, you need to let somebody else start having the joy of doing ministry, and you're not doing everything. We need to find a place for every member of our church to have a significant ministry of some kind. Showing forbearance to one another. The next one then, and I love this. I like the New English Bible here. It says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I must daily, intentionally, purposefully recognize that I need to do whatever it takes. Not for me but for the growth and health and unity of the church of Jesus Christ. Changes the focus. This American aggressive individualism is totally, totally out appropriate for the family-oriented corporate nature of the New Testament. Okay. Notice in verse 4, this is the oneness text. The reason that God's people are to be one is because God is one. I mentioned to you last night, I'll say it again because it's so powerful to me. 
In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays three times, three times. He says, Father, I pray that they be one even as we are one. Whatever we have done well, we have not done that well. Amen? And I pray. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to cry or shout or scream. Do you pray for other churches? Do you, do you pray for other spiritual events? Do you pray at all for the persecuted church in the world? Do you pray for Syrian Christians living in tents in winter? Do you pray for anything except yourself and what you get and what you want? Do you care about any other Christian? Or is it just about you and yours? When are we going to see that how we treat one another is the greatest magnet to a lost and hurting world? And then we're ugly to each other. The world doesn't understand that. It does not understand that. There's a call to unity here. Brother, sister, I'm talking to you. We're called to spare no effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One body, corporate. It may surprise you that in Ephesians, the, church, the word church is always universal. In Colossians, it's always an individual church. Why? Ephesians is a cyclical letter written to more than one church. Um, one spirit. I'm, this is the Holy Spirit, I'm sure. One hope. Now, the word hope in the New Testament doesn't mean what the English word means. The word hope in English means, oh, I wish it would come true. Oh, please, please let it be true. Not. This is not how this Greek word is used. The Greek word hope means the consummation of a believer's faith. It doesn't always say how. It's like, I know Jesus is coming. I just don't know when and who and how and where. Does that make sense? So it's not hope like, oh, please, maybe, could be. It's this is what's going to happen. But until it happens, I'm going to live ready. One hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all. If you have my notes, you see that I did a special topic on monotheism here. I hope you'll look at that. There's, we are not tritheist. We are monotheist, but we have a tremendous footnote on that. And it's, it's just mystery. It's hard for us. Now, beginning in verse 7 is, I think, the second major truth of chapter 4. And that is that each individual Christian is gifted. Now, the definitive text on this is probably 1 Corinthians 12. And again, along what I've been saying about that we're given for the health and growth of the church, I want to remind you, if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there to 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 11. 7 and 11. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 11, it says, we are gifted for the common good. Oh, what a text. We are gifted for the common good. Not me. Look what I do. Look what I have. No, no. Gifts are servant towels for us to wash each other's feet. And verse 11 says, He gives to each one individually just as the Spirit wills. So at salvation, the Spirit gives a gift or even more possibly. But they're given not to uplift the individual, but to serve the whole. And once we see that, it makes a real difference. So to put it in crude, rude, there are no throwaway Christians. If you're old enough to be saved, you're old enough to be gifted. And if you're gifted, there's a place for you in the body of Christ. And we must change this model of platform people and those who sit and observe. That is a horrendous biblical model. It's just horrendous. While I'm on this, every time in the New Testament, 
We get the word clergy from a word kleros, which is an Old Testament word for the priest uh, getting a certain piece of meat out of the cauldron. It was used of Levites. But in the New Testament, every check me on this. Every time the word kleros is used, we get clergy from, it refers to all the people of God. And the word we get called laity is nothing more than the Greek word laos, which is their word for people. There is no distinction in the New Testament. Now, there are gifts of leadership, no question. But there is none of this uh, special ordination for some and the rest of you are just peasants. You are important to God. You are important to God's church. You are gifted and no one else can do what you can do in the particular church that you go to. You are significant, my friend. I'm just going to take a, I'm going to take a theological aside here. You are a wonderful, beautiful, eternal creature. You are a higher spiritual order than angels. There is no angel said to be made in the image and likeness of God. There is no angel for whom Jesus died. Jesus told the apostles, you will judge the angels. You are a higher spiritual order than the angels. But we live in the fog of the fall and don't know who we are and live defeated lives because we don't know how much God loves us and who we are and what Jesus has done for us. Somebody, amen. Somebody once said, good preaching is telling Christians what they already are in Christ. I believe that. I believe that. Now, each one is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, if you look at verse 8 in your Bibles, I hope you have your Bibles with me. I hope you have a study Bible. You will see that this is a quote from Psalm 68, 18. But if you turn to Psalm 68, 18, it doesn't say what Paul says. This is not a quote from the Masoretic Hebrew text. This is not a quote from the Greek Septuagint. This is a quote from one Aramaic Targum. Paul picked a translation that fit what he wanted to say and skipped the Hebrew text that he knew and skipped the Bible of the early church, which is the Septuagint, and went to an Aramaic Targum to make his point. The, the Hebrew text says that Yahweh receives the gifts. That's what the Greek text too. But Paul says he gave gifts to men. And it's this emphasis on that. Now where it says that, if you look at that, he led captive a host of captives. If you look at the Colossian parallel, this is the imagery of a Roman triumphal march where the conquering uh, generals on the white horses and behind him are prisoners in chains. Well, the chains here are what? Principalities and powers, the world forces of wickedness are behind that chariot of the cross of Christ. This is the Colossian, the Ephesian parallel to Colossians. I hope you'll look at it, Colossians 2.15. Now, all of us have wondered what verse 10 is. Um, 8 through 10 is talking about one of two things. It's talking about Jesus left heaven and was incarnated into the womb of Mary in Bethlehem, or earlier than Bethlehem, really, Nazareth. Or it's Jesus dying on the cross and descending into Hades, the holding place of the dead, and then breaking that place out and coming out with believers. Now, this one is based on 1 Peter 3 and 4, but I think contextually this is talking about the incarnation, though I certainly believe that Jesus descended into the prison and preached to the spirits in prison, and the third day he arose and, and took the righteous part with him. I, I wish I had time to develop that. Maybe quickly, just, just a couple of words. 
Remember the thieves on the cross on each side of Jesus? Both initially reviled him, but one finally said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now you know that Jesus did not go back to heaven until 40 days later, right? So that cannot refer to heaven there. Well, what does that paradise mean? The rabbis, not the Bible, but the rabbis say that the holding place of the dead, Sheol in the Old Testament, Hades, the unseen in the New Testament, was divided. The righteous part was called paradise, and the unrighteous part is called Tartarus, which is only used once in the Bible for the angels that kept not their proper state in 2 Peter 2. Now, just think, when Jesus came out of the grave, I think he took the righteous part with him. And now 2 Corinthians... 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 8. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You and I do not go to the holding place of the dead. We go in some limited way to have fellowship with Jesus until the second coming. But it looks to me like from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, the rapture text, that we don't get our full bodies until resurrection day. So there's an intermediate state that's rather confusing and more Greek than the Hebrews didn't see it that way, but I don't know how else you deal with that. That's just free for those of y'all who came tonight. <laughs> okay, let me find out where I am. Okay, I want to go to verse 11 now. So verse 10 is the incarnation, I think. Then he himself gave. Now Paul lists spiritual gifts several times. Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and then there's another one even in Peter. None of the lists agree. And even when they agree, the order is not the same. I submit to you that this is not a definitive list, that these lists are representative samples. And there are many, many more gifts than those that are listed in the Bible. But the, what people need to hear is you are gifted. So the question comes, what is the purpose of these leadership gifts? And there are several, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. Now, these are the leadership gifts. What are the leaders to do? Now, first of all, I wish I knew what an apostle was. I mean, this is not capital A, live with Jesus, write scripture apostle. No, no, no. This is an ongoing leader in the church like Barnabas and Silas and Andronicus and Junius, those guys. I'm not sure I know what those are. And, and what is, what is a, a prophet? This is not Old Testament prophets who wrote scripture. This is New Testament prophets. Now, Agabus predicted the future, but most of the time, New Testament prophets apply scripture in new and different ways. If you're interested in that, I hope you'll go to the website or the disc and look up Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy where I try to document that. Brothers and sisters, I have spent 40 years in this book and I have documented at least most of my opinion. I, I can spend five days on these verses. Please check my evidence from the Bible before you say, I never heard that. You're a liberal. <laughs> Just because you never heard it doesn't make it right or wrong. Amen? Got to check the biblical evidence. I've laid it out for you in these special topics, but you've got to take, you've got to take the decision to look at it and look them up. I'm over it now. <laughs> what is an evangelist? I wish I knew what an evangelist is. I am a Great Commission Christian. My heart absolutely grieves for a lost world. I spent my life going into the world doing evangelism. Why are evangelists only mentioned three times in the New Testament? If it's so important, why aren't they mentioned more? Is this a local church guy? Is this an itinerant guy? <laughs> In my tradition, we say, well, evangelists are those who wear white shoes, holler a lot, and bring their own offering envelopes. <laughs> 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 I don't know what they are. 
I would say they preached the gospel in different ways. That's what I think. Now, pastor-teacher here is one, in the Greek text, it's one office. Because of the, of the false teachers, the pastors here had to be teachers. But in 1 Corinthians 12, they're broken out into a separate gift. So here it's one gift. And the pastor-teachers are those on the... I would I'd say to the pastors I know, brothers, I have, my life is easy in the university compared to you. It's the pastors who are on the front lines of the conflict between the world and the church. All the rest of us are helpers and back, back helpers and backstoppers and encouragers. I hope you pray for the pastors and not just your own. Every time a pastor fails, the kingdom is shook. We need to pray for them for protection and insight and care. And you want to make a pastor better? Accentuate the good things he does and he'll do it better. And if you want to find fault with them, everyone I know is a jerk. Put their pants on one foot at a time. And so are you. We start throwing rocks. This glass house will break. And none of us are that hot that we can judge anyway. Okay. Now what is the... If I, this, if I am misinterpreting this, God have mercy on me. Yeah, please check me right now because I'm going to make an important transition here. What is the purpose of these leaders? I think verse 12 says... I, want you, I don't care what translation you got. Look at verse 12. What is their purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Who is to do the ministry? The people of God. These guys are player coaches. This word equipping was used for a baby chicken that has gotten big enough to be sold as a fryer in the market. This word is used for a broken arm that has been healed and can now be used again. It was used for a ship that was totally built but did not have the sails and rigging. It means equipped for the assigned task. These guys are meant to equip us that we can function in our spiritual gift for the kingdom. They are not meant to do it. I was telling the staff, I got the chance to meet with them. I enjoyed it so much. People call me and say, Brother Bob. Whenever they say Brother Bob, watch out. Um, uh, We have a third cousin that needs to be prayed for. And I'm saying to myself, you can't pray for your own third cousin. You call me to pray for your third cousin? Or they call me and say, Brother Bob, our children are ready to trust Christ. Would you come over? Do you think I have a little stamp that says the pastor was here that I stamp on their butt because I bring them to the Lord? You can't lead your own children to the Lord? You've got to call the pastor for what does the Bible mean on every text? When are you going to start feeding yourself? When are you going to start realizing you are gifted and you need to not say yes to everything? The enemy of the, of the best is the good. You need to find what you're gifted in. Train for it. Prioritize it. And function in it. Amen? Amen. I am after you. Sitting in a church is not a gift. Neither is parking your car at 11 o'clock on Sunday. And you are gifted and you are called. And you will stand before God for your gift. Now in verse 13, here's the problem. The church is full of baby Christians. You don't believe that, change the order of service. You don't believe that, bring a new instrument in. You don't believe that, wear something different. We are, look, what, look at this. We're not mature men, verse 13. We're children. We're tossed here and there. 
by trickery, wind of doctrine, scheming and deceitful. This is, this is a dice throwing in spiritual ways. We get more upset because somebody didn't do what we liked on Sunday. We get mad because somebody didn't tell us we're wonderful. We're mad because somebody didn't do exactly what we prefer. And people are going door to door saying Jesus is not God. And we don't even think about that, but we'll kill each other over personal preferences. No wonder the world doesn't come. They, they like squabbling people over things that don't make a hill of beans. And we do it all the time because we're Americans. I get to vote. I give money. Friends, you better not vote or nothing or give your opinion until you've prayed about it and it better be Jesus' opinion before you open your mouth. This isn't a democracy. This is a theocracy. This is not about your freedom. It's about His kingdom. How do I reach an American church that is so puffed up with I get? You get to die. (coughs) That He might live through you. That's what you get to do. You get to lay down your life for others as he laid down your life for you. First, first John 3.16. We are spoiled rotten. American Christianity may be the weakest form the world has ever known. I remember I went, some of my friends went to Romania. And they had a crusade there. And pastors came out to the plane. And my friends said to them, we'll be praying for you. And these Romanian pastors, God help me. Looked at those American pastors with their big buildings and their big budgets and all their resources. And they said, are you kidding? We're praying for you. You're the one with the problem. We just don't see it. We've got all this stuff and no transformed lives. What is the matter with us? We're 21st century. What's in it for me, Americans? Oh, yeah. Good job, I don't know how God's going to break through unless he puts this thing into a crash. And I guarantee you it's coming. People say, God bless Americans for the life of me. I want to know why. Why would he bless this place with what we do to him? Friends, there better be a revival soon. It's going to start with us. And when we start praying and start changing and start being Christ-like, then our culture will take notice of us. And until then, we're just another ism and they're used to them. In verse 17, it talks about it, that you walk no longer. It shows they were. They were walking in the world. But now they've been changed. They have the indwelling spirit. And there's now a call to holiness. Now it talks about the lost people. It says they were in the futility of their mind. This is that Old Testament word for vain, empty, and aimless. These These are the false teachers. They are darkened in their understanding. They're spiritually blind. And they are self, that word calls ignorance is in them. That means self-ignorance. These aren't, these aren't uh, sincerely uninformed. These are informed and choose self and sin. Because of the stubbornness of their heart. This is the reviving results of the fall. I, sub, I submit to you, as an Old Testament professor, that New Testament salvation is nothing more than the image of God damaged in the fall is now fixed in Jesus Christ that we can have intimate fellowship with God. And the way you know that's happened is by their fruit ye shall know them when it's not about me, but it's about others. There's the marker. There's a by their fruit. Selfishness and meism is the sign of the fall. 
And God, what can I do for you and the kingdom and others is a sign that you met the one who sent his son for them as well as for you. Well, I got to preaching. Sorry. Uh, notice where it says that they've lost sensitivity. This is someone who's been bee stung too much, become callous, cannot respond. They've given themselves to sensuality. Is that a morning newspaper for America? We have turned the beauty of human sexuality in the more and more for me in the immediate moment. And we flaunt it. We flaunt things in our culture that embarrass pagans. God have mercy on us. And practice every kind of impurity and greed. But you did not learn Christ in this way if first class conditional since Jesus... (laughs) Now, the word laicides in verse 22, this is a metaphor of clothing as a way of talking about Christianity. We're to take off the old soil clothes of the old nature, and we're to put on the new clothes of the new nature. I think maybe Paul got this from Zechariah 3, where Joshua, the descendant of the high priest after the Babylonian exile, was standing before the Lord, and Satan was accusing him because he had filthy garments. And this is where, where God gives him brand new uh, clean, high priestly garments. Friends, when we stand before God, you and I, with all of our sin and shame, will be wrapped in the robes of Jesus' righteousness. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Yeehaw! I want to go to 426, page 148, if you have the notes. Uh, Be angry and do not sin. Now, friends, if sin is an anger, Jesus sinned. You think he walked into the temple and said, you guys, please leave. <laughs> he beat the fool out of them with that whip, right? Kicked over their tables. He's angry because of what they did to the house of God that turned it into a place for Gentiles, into them making money for the high priest. Now, there are some things we ought to be mad about. I hope you're mad about how many babies we kill for personal convenience. I hope there's some things you're mad about. But if you dwell on it, you know, I've seen, I'll just take that for example. I've seen sincere Christians stand across from abortion clinics and cuss at unsaved women having an abortion. And why would you expect they do anything else? Why would they think about anything else except themselves? But I guarantee you, when we cuss at them and scream at them, those young women are not going to be open to hear about Christ. I heard a professor one time say, we ought to put a barrier at the top of the cliff. Warning, warning, warning. But when lost and fallen mankind go right through the barrier, we must man an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. How easy it is for us to be self-righteous and talk about how we shouldn't do that, but we don't invite pregnant women into our homes and churches. And when they come pregnant and unmarried, we don't love them. We judge them, criticize, and ostracize them. Our moralistic judgmentalism is horrendous in the eyes of heaven. Be angry and sin not. My wife's here. Just love her to death. Uh, We speak two languages. She speaks Venetian and I speak Martian. And someday she'll say something to me. I'll go, what? Where did that come from? How do you get there? And then I'll think, you know, I don't understand that. I don't agree with that. But I can kind of see where she's coming from. But if I get mad, if I get mad, it doesn't hurt her, it hurts me. 
And then that anger, when it goes subliminal, we go to sleep, it's, it becomes a detached anger. The, the example I use, I, I'm bad this background. We have business meetings. And, oh, my soul, you can't imagine what happens in business meetings. Visitors we've invited to come make one business meeting and quit. So we had a business meeting over we're going to give pencils at Vacation Bible School. What verse should we put on the pencils? Now, this should not be an earth-shattering decision. And people start crying, and they start screaming. I'm going, let's just leave the pencils blank. <laughs> Holy mo- Somebody hurt that person. And in their mind, they say, however long it takes, whatever it takes, I'll get you. And they're strewn throughout our congregations. And that disgruntled, negative, mad, it starts landing in all kinds of strange places. May I say to you, the Bible calls that a root of bitterness. If you have that, if you're not going to forgive somebody, that's going to destroy your life and never hurt the person you're mad at. That is a spiritual cancer that will rob you of the joy of worship, rob you of the assurance of salvation, rob you of every good thing that will rob you that root of bitterness. You better give it to God because you cannot handle it. Amen? Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I've got a few more minutes. Let me cover a few more things. You mean in verse 27 that us getting angry give the devil an opportunity? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Do you mean that there is a personal force of evil? You do remember chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, right? The three enemies of man, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You mean he's looking for opportunities to enter our lives? Yes. Yes, he is. And I, I, was, in a, I was in Grace Mennonite Church two weeks ago in Enon, Oklahoma. And I said to them, verse 28 reminds me of, of the Mennonites. <laughs> Because the, the women had made 260 handmade pie crusts for a selling that they do for, for their missions, right? And I didn't realize it said, let him who steals steal no longer. <laughs> I didn't mean the first part of the verse. I meant the second, where it says we must labor in order that we may have something to share with him who is in need. You see, in the Christian life, we work as unto the Lord, and the bounty goes to those who have need, not more and more for us. Ladies, how many shoes do you need? How many new cars do we need? How many square feet do we need? When are we going to start giving to the kingdom instead of giving to consumerism? We work for what? So we'll be able to give to others. You know, the ones who have everything always worry about somebody taking it. I've never met a guy that lives in a tent worried about too many people stealing something out of it. <laughs> the bigger house, the bigger the fence, the more security, the more guards, friends. We are not here for ourselves. We're not here except for a brief period of time. This world is not our own. We're just passing through, work, live, and share. There is a nerve from the wallet to the heart that's bigger than any nerve in the body. It talks about in verse 29 that we ought to speak a a word of edification. I think our talk is important. Jesus said we'll be judged by every word that we speak. We're meant to speak in a way that gives grace to those to hear. I think we ought to think about that. You know, I enjoy joking and all, but we've got to be careful we just got to be careful that we speak. I, and just a word, and I'm going to close with this. 
Martin Luther said, there's some Lutherans here, Martin Luther said, your tongue is in a wet place and liable to slip. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm kind of in the book of James, really, but it fits here. You have the power with what you say to bless and lift up and edify and strengthen and you have the power to criticize and wound and hurt and destroy. And James would say, that shouldn't come out of the same mouth. We need to be purposeful in what we say to our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our co-workers, to the garbage collector, to the guy that helps at the grocery store, because they know who you are. And our words can be one of the most powerful witnesses if we'll just speak with grace. Amen? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.